Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It's New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host for this episode, Richard Briette. Today, I'll be interviewing Michelle Ann Stevens. Michelle is the author of Skin Acts, Race, Psychoanalysis, and the Black Male Performer. Michelle teaches in the departments of English and Latino and Hispanic Caribbean Studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Originally from Jamaica, West Indies, she graduated from Yale University with a PhD in American Studies and teaches courses in African-American, American, Caribbean, and Black diaspora literature and culture. She's also the author of Black Empire, The Masculine Global Imaginary of Caribbean Intellectuals in the United States, 1914 to 1962. That's from Duke University Press, 2005. Um, of, she's also, um, and I'm hoping to talk about this a little bit later, she's also currently in training at the William Allenson White Institute of Psychiatry, Psychoanalysis, and Psychology. Michelle Ann Stevens, welcome to New Books. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Um, one of the um, questions that we like to usually start with is, um, could you tell our audience what brought you to write this book? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I was born and grew up in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And it actually wasn't until I came here in the U.S. to go to college that I really had to wrestle with the question of my own racial identity. In Jamaica, I was considered a variety of things, red, yellow, brown, mixed. I actually consider myself to be Afro-Caribbean. Okay. And so when I got here, first to undergrad, I, was, uh, I went to SUNY Stony Brook. I was an English major and a philosophy minor. And then when I was in graduate school, I became more interested in West Indian intellectuals in the United States more generally. How did other West Indians kind of deal with what it meant to be West in Jamaican, Trinidadian, Barbadian, you know, Guy- Guyanese mm-hmm. in the United States, and then specifically how they related to American culture and African American culture specifically. So I received my degree in American studies, which is a kind of mix of literary and cultural analysis steeped in a historical context. Mm-hmm. But when I entered the American studies program, there was something very significant that was happening intellectually, which is British cultural studies and African-American studies were both just beginning a dialogue about what blackness meant, the nature of blackness as a kind of cultural and historical formation, Mm. and the way this formation took shape over the centuries in a kind of triangular space between Europe, Africa, and the New World. So that was very interesting to me, given my background. It seemed to provide a way for me to integrate my experience as a Jamaican, what it seemed was happening here in the United States in terms of race. And so alongside my studies of 20th century American culture, I started to study black cultural studies, scholars like the late Stuart Hall, whose students were actually um, my teachers and advisors at Yale. And black subjectivity became, kind of broadly speaking, my focus. That reminds me, sorry to interrupt, that reminds me a little bit of um, Dick Hebdige. I think he was of that same... Yeah, the book Cut and Mix, excuse me, <clears throat> Cut and Mix, about music in that sort of triangle that you, um, the geographic triangle you um, describe. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his interest was in 
kind of how to think about black subcultures right. within um, a kind of broader English context. And I think that that was happening in England, and it was, and Dick Hebdige himself would have been a part of this cultural studies group. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, there was the recognition that, you know, there could be a conversation here with the way African Americans think about their cultural place within the United States. And that was kind of interesting for me because I'm coming in as a Jamaican. So here is this intellectual conversation going on between the black British and African Americans. Often, both of them talking about cultural forms that had some Caribbean background. You know, both the, the subcultures that Dick Hebdige was studying often tended to be from West Indian migrants in England. Right. And some of the black musical subcultures in the U.S. have a strong West Indian context. So I was very fascinated by all of that. Like, mm-hmm. so we're, we're here, but we're not here. Well, what does that mean? And that very much became a part of what I was studying. The... Um the unspoken or the... But that's an earlier... You had originally asked me how it led me right. kind of towards Skin Axe. And that earlier sense of things, I would say that those earlier studies probably helped me think about blackness as something historical, mm-hmm. as a kind of historical formation. Mm-hmm. And that probably shaped my first book. But I was still left to the question about why the skin is so prominent in the way that we think about race and the way that we think about blackness. And I was probably, you know, thinking about that a little bit because of my own personal history. I had mentioned that I had there are all these names that used to be applied to me when I was in Jamaica. You know, I left Jamaica where I was red, yellow, brown mixed, and I came to America, and now I was black. And right. trying to think through, you know, the role of the body, the role of the skin in how we understand race kind of stayed with me as a question. And I really think that some of those personal issues shaped how I went into Skin Axe. Okay. Well, um, why don't we, let's talk about the book. Can you sort of um, basically describe what you're trying to do with the book and, and also the title? I would love to hear you talk about the title. Yes. Um, so partly because of, I'm always fascinated in history. So mm-hmm. It's very difficult for me to approach anything without thinking about it in historical terms. So even though I had this personal relationship to the question of how we think about our skin, for me, the starting point to pursuing that seemed to be, well, is there a way to historicize this? And some of this is my own cultural studies background. Is there some way, you know, is there a history to how we have started to think about the skin and skin color? Is this shaped by some historical determinants? And so I kind of started to research what are the things that have led to the ways in which we racialize the skin. And I found that to be very fertile. There was mm-hmm. actually, you know, there was a, a number of studies, kind of a, a grouping of studies coming from very different fields, you know, mm-hmm. from the natural sciences, from philosophy, from aesthetics, from um, cultural studies, talking about the skin. But none of them spoke specifically in terms of race. So that was a real gap, even in this kind of grouping of skin studies. And so I, in reading through, I was able to bring to bear my, my kind of understanding of the skin and how it had been understood within black studies. And it led to me framing for the book these two different notions of the skin. One, you know, the skin itself, and the other, this notion of the flesh. Mm-hmm. And these became kind of very significant terms in how I then moved through the analysis of the book. So it seems like you, uh, I mean, uh, I even have written in my notes here, skin, flesh, and then psychoanalysis. It seems like, can you talk, uh, since this is new books in psychoanalysis, can you talk a little bit about... I'm so sorry, Richard. I can't quite hear you. Could you just repeat that? Sure. Can you talk a little bit about how 
psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory fits in with your project? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, both notions of the skin, the skin itself and flesh actually are informed by psychoanalytic theory, but they're informed in slightly different ways. Mm -hmm. So the skin itself is the one that I think more people are, more people are familiar with. Um, It's certainly the notion of the skin that guides black studies as an academic field. It's the idea that the skin is a kind of, you know, product of a certain kind of gaze. It's a, it's a signifier for the specificity and the, particular, the particularity of race. Here, the work of a very particular figure, the psychiatrist and postcolonial thinker Franz Fanon, mm-hmm. was very helpful to me. He has a term that he created um, called epidermalization. Mm-hmm. And um, that term essentially, uh, you know, you could define it, or just, uh, a contemporary scholar, Paul Giroy, describes it as an inability to see beyond the skin. The skin becomes a kind of um, impermeable barrier, to, and, and, and nothing can penetrate the skin in terms of one's understanding of the human subjectivity that lies underneath the skin. Mm-hmm. So that kind of racializing gaze, partly shaped by Fanon's discussion of epidermalization was one way in which I came to understand the skin. But psychoanalysis also informed that notion because when I was reading Lacan, what I liked about Lacan's notion of the gaze was the idea that there is a gazer whose subjectivity shapes both what he or she can see and what they're not seeing. And that seemed to me a very useful way of thinking about the racializing gaze, the person who is doing the looking that there's both, that gaze consists of both, you know, epidermalizing projections, sure, but also blind spots. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, and I felt that sometimes we got very focused on the reifying, stereotyping, objectifying power of the gaze without thinking about or theorizing what do the blind spots also say about subjectivity and, and, and how is that a part of the dynamic in thinking about the skin. And so it was those two ideas, kind of both, you know, what's on either side? The skin is representative of the person who is gazed upon, and then the gaze itself is representative of the person who is doing the gazing. To me, what that meant was that actually the skin or racialized skin is a product of a relationship. It's not simply an object. It's, mm-hmm. a product, it's a product of some kind of relationship between gazed upon and gazer. And that idea of thinking about the skin as produced from a certain mode of relating between two subjects um, became very kind of generative for me in trying to think differently about how to complicate notions of the skin as we had come to understand them within black studies. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one, that's, the, that's one side of the equation. You can certainly see how um, it would take a few steps further from that to think, well, what's a, what's a context in which you can watch gazer and gaze and gazee, you could say, the person who's being looked at and the person who's doing the looking, what's a context in which you could kind of look at that more closely? And performance became very significant because it seemed like, ah, this is a place where those acts of spectatorship are happening, but there's clearly so much more that's happening beyond just simply, you know, audiences are being affected by black performers in significant ways. And those effects and affects go much more beyond simply just racial, the racializing power of the gaze. So that seems like a very important space to kind of look at this more closely. Once I looked at performance and started to really um, kind of take performance on its own terms, I realized that I needed another way of capturing 
the kind of bodily and the bodily modes of relating that are happening between performers and their and their racialized performers and their audiences um, that went beyond just simply these notions of epidermalization that Fanon provides, and that's really where the notion of the flesh came from mm-hmm. was you know a way of trying to capture how blackness is lived from within the body and how it's performed, how that's expressed. How I'd put it is how blacknesses live both from within the body and then maybe across two bodies. Mm-hmm. So experienced in the space between the performer and his audience. And I, I recall um, Fanon talks about that with this idea of the kind of interpolation of the the white person calling on the black person. Yes. And it's a calling that happens on both of them. That's right. Right. That's right. And what the, the, the chapter from which that scene is taken is a chapter that is, it's actually paradigmatic because it's a chapter that's often, it's, I think it's the fifth chapter of Black Skin, White Mass, and it's a chapter often used to describe simply that kind of stereotyping moment. You know, Fanon is on a train, I think a white child sees him and says, look, a Negro, and mm-hmm. that's the scene that's often used to characterize there is that interpolating, epidermalizing moment. But there's a lot more that happens in that chapter. He's certainly exploring what the effect of being a sub- becoming a subject in a system in which you are led to identify different people by how they look, that certainly is having an impact on the white child as much as it's having an impact on him. That's a part of that chapter. But what is also part of that chapter is his very explicit descriptions of something that happens to his body, how he loses one sense of himself, and it's replaced by another sense of himself when that happens. And that's one of the things I felt had been missing in analyses of that chapter, this other notion of his body as he experienced it from within, as that got kind of displaced by that interpolating call and that interpolating gaze. You know, everybody gets focused on the interpolating gaze, but what about this other experience of his body? What is that? You know, is that something that we can also bring back into view? There's a... um a quote that I have from your introduction, which I just love the whole paragraph, but um, I want to read one little bit. I can't help myself here. The desire, a product of colonial modernity that leads to an alienating separation from the body is bad enough for the black subject during slavery. The subsequent tragedy is that even after slavery, black flesh never reclaims itself. The experience of a doubly split off double consciousness the epidermalized black body split off from the skinned body without an image remains an inherent condition of modern black subjectivity. Just fantastic. It's just... Thank you, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. Even there was even a, a diagram. I mean, it, it, it's a small just shift in thinking that really, I think, um, were very generative for the work I, I'm doing in this book. Mm-hmm. There's a diagram that Fanon has where he has, you know, he's sets up the typical dialectic that we're used to. You know, he uses Hegel's master-slave dialectic, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, um, there's a way in which you can see the, the, black, the black subject engages with the white subject, you know, within this dialectic, right? Mm-hmm. But what he then does is he complicates, and he says, actually, what the black subject is facing is two forces. On the one hand, the white subject, yes, but on the other hand, the black object some black other, a, fig- a figure, a kind of representation of blackness that he now has to, what we studying psychoanalysis would call a kind of object, an internal object that he now has to struggle with that is not himself, but is how he is seen 
by that white subject. So it's a kind of triangulated um, uh, process. And there's a gap between how he experiences himself and this object that is out there somewhere in the space between him and the white subject that he's interacting with. And I just found that so just kind of separating, you know, not collapsing the representations of the black self with the black self, you know, his or herself, and also acknowledging that you are aware as a black person that you exist somewhere slightly different from how you're being represented, and you're struggling with being in both of those positions at the same time. That tension was what I found so interesting. And that, I think, is what you're saying when Fanon describes this sort of visceral reaction in his body. Yeah. Right? It also makes me think about that the concept of the melancholy of, of race and the, the melancholic reaction to the the white object that you are not also. Yes. Right? Yes. Now, one, definitely. And now that, I think, um, for a while, that was, and, and continues to be a very fruitful, um, you know, it was very fruitful for my way of thinking as okay. I was writing the book. But something started to happen, and it actually leads a little bit to why I think I started to read Lacan a little bit differently, which is, even the melancholic viewpoint, mm-hmm. with its focus on loss, seems so pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, the tragedies of interracial interaction are certainly palpable in, in that kind of an approach, and they're certainly real. But it also, for after a while, I started to feel like, is there no way, you know, does one only, can one only be um, tragic or pessimistic about what the possibilities are for relating across interracial lines? Mm-hmm. And that, that pessimism seemed to me to link a little bit with the kind of, sta- you know, s- standard and certainly accurate understanding of Lacan as being somewhat so focused on a subject that is based on lack, a subject right. that is constituted out of lack, right. kind of out of the gap between the subject's desire and the subject's kind of the objects that desire is directed towards. So all of that focus on lack and what could not be kind of achieved it felt to me like there might be a more optimistic appraisal of what was actually what was possible in interpersonal relations mm-hmm. and racial relations. And I started to look around, I think, and I started to be drawn to psychoanalytic approaches that spoke more to that than the more pessimistic or melancholic approaches in relationship to race, which were more, which were kind of, had there had been a stage where there, where there was a really interesting turn to, to think about melancholia in terms of racial identity. So, but I, I took a bit of a turn away from that because I was looking for something slightly different. Cue uh, Jessica Benjamin then, right? Yes. She became actually very... Her distinction between the intra-psychic and the interpersonal, I think, was one intellectual step for me and a kind of um, hopeful step, just making that distinction suddenly created now more possibilities for imagining, oh, you can actually imagine, imagine something happening in a kind of real interpersonal interaction. Her idea that there is actually an intersubjective other that sits outside of and cannot be fully incorporated into the self as an internal object. That I found, it's like I just needed that kind of affirmed, and right. once she affirmed that for me, I was like, I could run with it, you know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. There, and I think as a black person, you have that experience. You know that your um, you know that your relations, it's not just that you have a sense of yourself separate from how someone perceives you. You know that the relational dynamic with that person is still being impacted by your sense of self. 
So there's more going on there than just whatever object they've created of you in their minds. So I thought that that was really, it was, that was certainly, it was both hopeful and generative, um, Benjamin's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, you know, I would say to um, our listeners, the experience of reading the book, you, it, one really has the sense that you are in real time struggling with very important issues and sort of mm-hmm. bringing to bear all of these resources. But you get the, I, I got the feeling anyway that, you know, I'm really in there with you thinking through this stuff. So it was, you know, it's an exciting read for that reason. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I, but I'm realizing um, I want to bring us back to the book a little bit because um, we haven't even mentioned who the performers are that you talk about. That's right. Um, and so this, so you mentioned this notion of the gaze and you, you expand that to talk about, you know, um, viewer and viewed and that this is the uh, performance is a natural um, context in which to kind of explore that. So that brings in this idea of um, you, you, you work with um, four different performers mm-hmm. over the course of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and you bring in, I think implied, or maybe it's not just implied, is how technology plays a role in this dynamic between viewer and viewed and um, a kind of the existential uh, experience of the self as part of that dynamic. Before we, before we get into all of this, I want to see if I can, if I can ask you um, without going on too much of a tangent, you, you do make a, a point in the book. Why black male performers? Why, why male? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know this is a huge question, but, you know, let's... I I have a personal answer and a technical answer. Okay. (laughs) The personal answer is that these are four performers who had been completely um, uh, powerful performers for me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wanted to write about them. That's great. That's the first. Not that there aren't female performers also, but for some reason, these four kept, you know, they would appear in different forms, in different pieces of work, and I just really want, and I think partly also because they were all first. And the fact that they were all firsts is, is both to some degree independent of their masculinity and partly shaped by it, but mm-hmm. each in their moment was kind of an icon. And so that all I found very fascinating. Mm-hmm. As I was doing the book and started to think more about, okay, so why is it then that they're all men? What is that, you know, what, what's the significance of that? I think what I came to realize is that some of this tension that I was exploring between a notion of the self that is seen as very self-enclosed and autonomous and separate, Mm -hmm. that then unfortunately also allows that self, when it's a black male self, to get objectified in a certain way without a kind of um, understanding of this more relational space between the performer and the audience. That that is actually, I think, a particular um, description of a certain kind of masculinity. And that in black feminist discourse, I think there is a, a different way of understanding black female subjectivity, both, you know, used both positively and negatively, but that doesn't rely as much on such a, a rigid notion of autonomy. A freedom isn't defined so much in terms of self-sufficiency and autonomy. And so that became, I think, as I thought it through more as the book was developing, as you yourself noticed, kind of working this through as I was going along, that became, it began to make more sense to me why, given what I was becoming interested in about these notions of the body, why men were 
these figures for a certain image of blackness as independent, and that this was then something that they were each struggling with in their performances and in their relationships with their audiences. Mm-hmm. That is that where Sylvia Winter comes in. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, um, that's part of she's partly Sylvia Winter, also partly Hortense Spillers. Mm-hmm. Um, for Winter, Winter's Winter's kind of role in this is is a little both interesting in particular. There's a essay she wrote where she talks about she did. What I tried to do with historicizing the skin, mm-hmm. she was one of the first people to do that for me with the notion of difference. You know, I, the difference is so naturalized now. It's celebrated even. We're supposed to celebrate difference. And right. Sylvia Winter was one of the first people I read who kind of articulated that um, difference itself, the, the, the noticing of difference and the kind of discursive significance of difference also has a history and can be historicized. And she makes this very particular argument that there's a switch that happens where gender, it switches from gender being the mark of difference to race. Mm. It's a very bold claim. You know, it has, you know, obviously, and it covers, it sweeps across centuries. But then as as I was reading this material on the body and the skin, I realized that there was historical, there was some historical justification for that um, claim. There is something about this hardened, autonomous, independent body that then also makes it a perfect canvas for um, depositing markers of difference that now also themselves seem very rigid and biologistic and essentializing. Mm -hmm. So the two things then connected for me, and that's some of the history that I pursue in the introduction. Okay. All right. Um, So I I also, I recall that there is, I don't know, uh, maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't get into this, but uh, I recall you talk about Fanon talking about black skin being necessarily phallic, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And I, I thought that was also, you know, part of the reason you're focusing on male performers. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I, I think yes. for the reasons you're talking about, I mean, what you just described about the, the individual um, could be seen as a kind of phallic presence, I suppose. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Some of the discussion of Lacan in the introduction is a way of linking the phallic with the epidermal. You know, it's, these are not obvious connections, but right. I think when you follow the kind of discursive um, paths, you see some of the, the ways in which they're very related to each other. You know, that there's, you know, and if you even want to put it in slightly different language, if for Lacan the kind of phallic signifier is when you are invested with authority in the symbolic order, a kind of phallic authority in the kind of social and symbolic world, then I think a certain vision of that that authority carries with a certain vision of a, should I even say, a non-relational kind of masculinity, you know, the kind of idea of a, I keep using that word, autonomous, independent. Um, So these, these connections, you know, I started to thread some of these connections together and you know, hopefully made a strong enough case for there being a kind of parallel track here between a certain notion of a phallic self and a certain notion of epidermal self, that there are some connections that partly explain some of the forces that are shaping dominant conceptions of black masculinity and that make it difficult to see alternative conceptions that might have a more relational feel to them. And just by uh, way of a footnote, I don't think we'll have time to get into this, but it was completely fascinating in the book, the history of um, the concept of skin 
and you talk about, um, I think the, the, the notion of skin that really becomes what you're talking about today started around the enlightenment. Yes. And that prior to that, you also talk about this notion of the grotesque. Um, and you know, there are some really, really fascinating, um, sort of explorations and descriptions of, um, the body, I guess we could say the body without image, the body without skin, the body of orifices, you know, I mean, I would even say the sort of um, pre-edible body, if you will, but it's yes. it's yes. all there. It's fantastic. Listeners, you have to get the book. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it gives me a chance to just say something about a part of the book that I particularly like, but okay. I'm not sure if other people, you know, but... I think that one of the things that I like about the, you know, the discussion of Lacan in terms of the gaze mm-hmm. is more was more kind of essential for helping me kind of initially with the argument. But when I found Lacan's discussions of this very obscure term, the lamella, yep. what I really liked about that is I really understood, and I won't go into it, you know, for too long because it might not be of interest to everyone. But I really, I really feel that that um, his discussion of this. Place, this place on the body where desire rests, where the struggle for um, the struggle, the, the subject struggle to match their internal wishes, their internal desires with their with external objects and goals, and he kind of finds a site on the body where he thinks that a, a kind of interface site where that struggle between inner and outer happens. That is my reading of what he's doing when he's um, defining this part object that he calls the lamella, which mm-hmm. he says is the organ that represents the libido. Mm-hmm. And what I found fascinating about that is when he tries to describe what that organ looks like, he's describing the skin. A lot of the attributes mm-hmm. he gives to it are the skin. And it felt to me, and especially when I came across that again in On Feminine Sexuality, where Lacan tries to talk about love, I really felt that there was a thread through Lacan of a more positive vision of human connective, connectiveness across lack and across gap in this notion of the lamella than I had seen people articulating in um, studies of his work. Mm. And it, 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 I was very excited about being able, partly because the, um, I really feel that in Unfeminine Sexuality, he's trying to do something there that felt very connected to my search for other modes of relationality. For me, it's about across the racial context, and that text for him, it's more across gender. Mm-hmm. But there's something that's very interesting that's happening there, which I think is related to some of these distinctions I try to draw in the introduction between phallic selves and invaginated selves, phallic modes of relating, mm-hmm. and invaginated modes of relating. So can you tell us um, about Burt Williams and your, your kind of reading of his performativity? So Burt Williams was a turn-of-the-century blackface minstrel, which meant that he used um, burnt cork and a kind of compound that was created to paint uh, a blackface mask onto his face. He was a comedian, and he would perform with his partner, George Walker, but he would perform in blackface with this uh, blackface mask. And he was a minstrel, so he would would kind of songs and comedy routines. Um, And what I became interested in is a kind of simple question. Why would you need to paint a blackface over an existing blackface. Like, that was kind of the, the, the question that started my inquiry. Mm. And it's because, for me, it seemed to uh, signal something about the need. It seemed a very literal move of turning the skin into a sign. It seemed like a very um, kind of 
concrete way of, of, of envisioning an attempt to take the skin as it is embedded in a human body and in a human relational context and pull it out and extract it and turn it into a signifier. So that approach is how I first looked at the way in which his blackface performances were read by white audiences of his time, predominantly white audiences of his time. But as I got further into exploring him, I realized that he was a very, very popular performer, incredibly popular across different audiences. And that he was one of the first figures that made me realize there are aspects to his performance that are reaching people, that people are, people are um, understanding or, or having an experience with his mind as a performer that go beyond even their own efforts to racialize him in certain ways, to epidermalize him in certain ways, to extract his, you know, sense of who he is as a subject from this kind of blackface minstrel caricature. And the more I realized that and started to think about, so where is my sense of that coming from? I was able to think more about how his, the other aspects of his performance, the bodily context that surrounds his face, his movements, his gestures, his voice, and then the richness of his voice, the different tonalities, the different inflections, the different affective registers in which he was reaching audiences that went beyond even their own efforts to keep him at a distance. Mm-hmm. So that push and pull between the audience's attempts to distance the racial performer, the performer's efforts to reach the audience you know, across that distance became the real um, fascinating dynamic to me that shaped my explorations of the of his you know of his um, show of his act, and that dynamic then I thought gave me a kind of um, perspective in which I ended up approaching many of the other performers, looking for both the acts of racialization and then their own performance acts that exceeded that um, those um, racializing uh, effects in their performances. So that was that was uh, that was one of the things that I loved about the Burt Williams chapter. Mm-hmm. He's actually very funny. <laughs> I listened to a lot of Burt Williams as I was writing that chapter. You know, it's, it's hard to teach because the humor is is turn of the century, so my students don't always get the punchline. Right. But he was very funny. Um, I should say I I um, we're going to post um, a description of this show on the New Books and Psychoanalysis page. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. And I found this website called blackface.com. Huh. And it has a Burt Williams uh, page. And it has the lyrics to the song Nobody. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm going to post a link to that along with links for the other performers. Um, but you do a really, uh, really poetic reading of this song. Mm-hmm. Do, could you talk a little bit about that? It's called sure. Nobody. It's from... Uh, the the um, show called Indahomie? Yes. Um, actually, I'm not sure it was even in the show, but it certainly became a signature song of his. The show is a little tricky because it, the, the, it was performed, part of its live um, nature was that it was performed and shows were sh- uh, songs were shuffled in and out. Okay. So in my researching of the show Indahomie, everyone always said you can't find a kind of libretto and a script that feels like it was the script because it, it changed at different times. But there was one. So, in, so nobody, I think, may, it may have been a song performed in the show, but whether or not it was performed in the actual show or in many of the performances, it certainly became a song separately that was associated with Burt Williams, the kind of character that he portrayed, this kind of down-on-his-luck, 
you know, nobody's going to do anything for me, nobody's going to help me out, you know, and he, and he sings it in this really um, doleful, you know, kind of amusing it's great. <laughs> voice that it made it really popular. But what I was struck by, you know, it, he, he says in the chorus something about, you know, um, I'm not going to do anything for nobody. And even just in the way I just said that, you can hear all of those double negatives. And I, uh, my reading kind of looks at how underneath those double negatives, he's saying something about both his belligerence in relationship to what he's performing for his audience, but also sending a clue to them that I'm not necessarily here. I'm not here where you're placing me as you position me as the kind of minstrel caricature performer singing this song. Um, there's, a, there's a great... Um, effect that he does in the song. The song has a very strong trombone uh, moment. And at one point, you know, the trombone is playing the harmony. And then at another point, you thought, you think you hear the trombone, and then you realize it's Burt Williams who's imitating the sound of the trombone. And for me, what, what I read that as, or what it evoked for me was a sense, again, this playing that he's doing with his audience, using the song to kind of play with his audience and showing them, I'm not exactly where you think I am, you know, I am the performer singing, but then sometimes you thought that was the trombone, that's not the trombone, that's me, and what's not me is the trombone, and there's a kind of lot of not me moves going on throughout the song, which I think reveal the way in which in a kind of intelligent way, not even necessarily completely consciously, some conscious, but some unconscious, he is trying to represent his complexity to the audience. And it's possibly even a, um, a questioning of the phallic presence that... Right, mm-hmm. that, right exactly. That, that the self just is, is present without any gaps, without any breaks, without any ellipses, right? Um, that the, that it, it is a positive kind of self-affirming presence as opposed to, as any of us doing psychoanalytic work know, it can also be a self-negating presence, right? That the self is a, is, is a much more uh, holy, kind of permeable, can be a much more un- experienced as, understood to be a much more holy, permeable entity. And there's some of that, I think, that is being articulated through that song. Um, and he's using his body. And he's certainly using his body, yep. mm-hmm. his posture, his... There's, a, there's an image of him as nobody, and I think I use it in the book, where there's a kind of shadow behind him, and the, the, the image of him kind of shoulders hunched and kind of, you know, mouth turned down, is not at all the, the, the bearing that he carried as a, as a, you know, when he was in his regular clothes, you could say he was much more very tall, very, you know, straight-backed. So certainly that one image tells us something about the way that he was using his body to inhabit the character, but then the shadow that stands behind the, um, his figure, I think, itself, and I do a lot of work with shadows in the mm-hmm. text, different performers and their shadows, mm-hmm. again, as a kind of visual trope mm-hmm. for, you know, not this kind of phallic, lone, self-constituted body, but a body that is kind of in multiple, the body of a performer that is in multiple places at the same time. Mm-hmm. Listeners, we have it all on our website. Um, <laughs> and strangely, from the a link to the site called blackface.com. Okay. Um, um, in the interest of time, um, shall we move on to Paul Robeson? Sure. 
Um, what was interesting to me about Paul Robeson was that it seemed very clear to me that even if even if Williams' performances exceeded um, his audience's uh, desires to kind of position him a certain way, their sense of the way that he should be positioned, their conscious sense of it, was very clear. There was, mm-hmm. you know. If anything, he was playing with that in his performances. By the time we get to the 30s and Paul Robeson, something really seems to shift culturally. And I choose the modernist, a series of modernist artists, as a way of just kind of giving me a few cases to help me look at this. Because a number of these white modernist artists, ranging from a sculptor to a photographer to a poet to a film director... I, I, I read and I notice and I hope I demonstrate in the chapter that there's a real invest interest in engaging much more tactilely with Robeson's mm-hmm. body. Absolutely. There's a real interest in touching him, and this is and this is one of was one of the central distinctions I used in kind of helping me understand what I was thinking about in terms of the flesh. The black body is a body that that is not just seen, but that is but that it, but a body that can be touched. And so the Paul Robeson chapter is very much about this body line between the, the, you know, the body, the skin as a kind of interface between the audience and the performer, but really between a, an impulse, a kind of desire on the part of the audience to touch him, to mold his body in a statue, to uh, photograph him nude again as a way of getting as close as possible to that body as you can through a technological medium. Um, and the poet, you know, describing herself, H.D., describing herself as a sculptor, molding his face, molding his muscles. So the more bod- uh, haptic or tactile um, uh, interaction with the black male body seems to me a very important feature of Robeson's charismatic, charismatic presence during the 30s. I mean, there was lots of attention to his physicality in his films, his physicality as an athlete. And that was what really fascinated, fascinated me as a, a, a different way of thinking about how white audiences are interacting with his body, even in a film like Borderline, which is the focus of the chapter, which on the surface seems to be a film all about the prohibitions against miscegenation. But yet the cinematic gaze is all about getting as close as you can to the black bodies of the characters in the film. So it really, I do a kind of reading that reads the film against the grain of its narrative. And uh, listeners, again, on our page about this, I have a link to the film Borderline. It's on YouTube. Um, And Robeson's entrance in the film, he is such a sex symbol, I thought. The way that he makes his first appearance in the film, the lead up to it and the, the energy... Um, around his appearance is really, really something to see. And, you know, there's something interesting about it that you could even see that because I think that we, this is what I think partly starts to happen in black cultural studies is that we're used to an analysis that thinks about the um, the, the sexual objectifying of the right. black body. Mm-hmm. And so then older films, so that, but for figures, for black figures who are, you know, cultural, popular cultural figures now who are alive to us, we're aware of that kind of eroticism and sexualization in both good and bad ways. It's kind of, it feels very vital to us. The mm-hmm. figures who are much older in the past, we look at these films and all we think we see is the objectification. And Borderline is a film that in, every, in, in all of the writing on that film, lots of interesting um, erotic dimensions were brought to bear on the presentation of the white characters in the film, but the two black characters, Paul Robeson and his actual um, real-life wife, Essie Robeson, 
were presented as these flat stereotypes. But when mm-hmm. I watched the film, all of that about Robeson jumped out at me as a mm-hmm. viewer. And so it's like, why is it that we can't find a way to talk about this theoretically and, and conceptually? And that was really one of the goals of the chapter, is to bring that Robeson back to life. Harry Belafonte. Um, yes. Are you, are you ready to... Um, we have a few minutes left, but I, de- I definitely don't want to leave out... Harry or Bob Marley. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the chapter is entitled The Problem of Color? Okay. Um, I'll, partly also because of time, I'll say really quickly first yeah. that with both Belafonte and Bob Marley, I think both of those chapters, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to think even more concretely about ways of um, relating to the black male performance body that can be figured through his relationships with women. So I just wanted to flag that. Mm-hmm. So Belafonte, the focus becomes the black male-white-female relationship, while in Bob Marley, the focus becomes more intra-racial relationships, black male-white, uh, black male-black female relationships. And I kind of, I'm trying to, so it's an effort to think about how to write about black male performers without also assuming that they, they aren't constituted by their relationships with people around them, and in this instance, the woman around them. So for the Belafonte chapter, the focus there. At the time that Belafonte was performing, black male, white, female relationships were completely framed by these narratives of miscegenation that got even more romanticized than they had been in the 30s when Paul Robeson was in Borderline. So now, all the the sexual tension, I mean, uh, Harry Belafonte was, if you think Robeson was a sexual icon, Harry Belafonte was most definitely a sexual icon in the 50s. And a lot of the eroticism around him, surrounding him, was about his relationships with white women. So I look at these two films in the chapter, one that I think, and 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 how they address that problem. And and in in the first film, Island in the Sun, the only solution for the black male character is that he must renounce relationships completely. So the prohibition against miscegenation results in a kind of romanticized, heroic figure who's only, the only mode of masculinity available to him that feels free and kind of self-determined is one that essentially cuts him off from a love relation with a white woman, but I think more generally constitutes him as a figure that is in a kind of mode of heroic renunciation. And the other film, what I like about The World of Flesh and the Devil, is that that heroic narrative is really not what is turned to. Instead... The film really articulates how both Belafonte and um, the white female character in the film are kind of burdened by a kind of historical, how these prohibitions against them interacting with each other romantically and even just humanly are a kind of prohibition that they bear as a kind of trauma in mm-hmm. their bodies and in their psyches. And I feel like the film makes that evident. It doesn't romanticize it as if, you know, it doesn't romanticize as if there's a kind of um, heroism to them not connecting. It mm-hmm. really leaves some of the, the, the fact that this is a result of a kind of social constraint very evident mm-hmm. in the way the film develops. And I try to show that in the, in the way that I, you know, read both of those films. So it's really trying to show how Belafonte and to some degree was aware in his film choices how he's working through the constraints and prohibitions of his time in relationship to his white audience through these figures of the white females that he's cast with in these films. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, um, 
And can, can you say a few things about Bob Marley? Why? How did you come to um, to to pick him, and how does he fit in with the sort of evolution of this conflict that you describe over the century? Yeah. But Bob Marley, that's probably the most personal figure in the sense that as a, he's, he's the figure that I would have grown, that I grew up with mm-hmm. um, as a, you know, such a, a prominent superstar in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the discourse around oneness that, you know, we all need to be, we're one people, you know, um, black, and, uh, black couples are one together in their solidarity, especially coming out of decolonization. That was very much the political, the, the world that shaped me and very much part of Bob Marley's heroism to me. So what was really interesting to me in researching more carefully, I, I, entered, I entered into the chapter thinking, why is it that when we celebrate Bob Marley as an icon, we can't also talk about his actual love relationships? We can talk about his kind of, you know, there's, you know, rumor and gossip and kind of scandal around his relationships with women, he had so many children, et cetera, et cetera, but... Somehow that story isn't integrated into how we think of him as this iconic figure for freedom. So the goal of the chapter was to think, was, well, well, what if this whole discourse of oneness kind of prevents us from and prevent and maybe even prevented him in his moment from a kind of real rec- recognition, kind of in the Jessica Benjamin sense, mm-hmm. a real recognition of black women as separate beings with whom one can have an interpersonal relationship with instead of as beings that needed to be incorporated into a kind of notion of black male freedom that revolved around the idea of oneness, we're one in this together. And that really became what I looked at when I read Rita Marley's autobiography. It really seemed that a lot of what that autobiography is about is her struggling to differentiate herself from his need for them to be seen, for them to understand themselves as one in a way that she found imprisoning. So that problem of a notion of black masculinity that it has to merge with and, and mesh with black femininity and then therefore incorporate black femininity and cannot somehow again recognize its own gaps and holes but live with those gaps and holes right. and keep um, a sense of black womanhood as separate and someone to relate to rather than someone to pull in and then mesh with those dynamics, those much more kind of psychic dynamics, are what I tried to bring to bear on a very different kind of analysis of Bob Marley and his music. And I also tried to do a little bit of contrasting different kinds of reggae, one that I think supports this much more, you know, fully self-contained black male figure who is in full control of his position and his stance and, you know, is in full control of his music versus a type of music, dub music, which I think leaves a lot of room for gaps and holes and echoes and the, the kind breaks, the kind of um, amputations in the black male self that were a part of the psychic legacy of mm-hmm. colonialism that I think a certain heroic image of Bob Marley tries to erase. And I think that you see how that tension plays out in his relationship with Rita Marley. So that's what the chapter tries to explore. I wish we could spend more time talking about that. Um, okay. So we're just about out of time. Um, did you have any, I was curious, um, anything about the reception to the book? How is it being received um, 
in academia so, or in psychoanalytic community? So far, very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's still a little bit early for an academic book in terms of seeing reviews and stuff because it's not hasn't even been out a, a full year yet. Right. But I've seen one review that was very was very positive. But what's even equally heartening or exciting is I'm getting a lot of just more one-on-one personal from colleagues and now from colleagues in two different communities that I'm a part of, my academic community, but now my psychoanalytic community who have, you know, really come up to me and talked with me one-on-one about different parts of the book that they found helpful, useful, interesting, provocative, you know, challenging, et cetera. So that, I think, I've just been having a, a lot of very rich conversations, and, that, and that's really what I hope, is to create a conversation in both fields, both black, make black studies scholars think about the usefulness of psychoanalysis and have psycho, psychoanalytic scholars and psychoanalysts think more about race and blackness. So that's, I couldn't have you know, asked for anything better than that. Fabulous. To be able to stimulate those conversations. Fabulous. Um, now, um, what do you have coming up next? You, you're, you're working on a, another project, another book? I am. I, well, I think I'm working on a collection of essays that has to do more with my kind of Caribbean studies identity. It's looking at um, how islands and island relations um, provide a conception of both of self and culture that's a little bit different from continental relations. Mm-hmm. And it's, analog- it's analogous to some of the issues I've been interested in because the islands have to wrestle with a lack of continuity, a lack of contiguity in mm-hmm. their relationship to each other. They're also, they're filled with you know, spaces of land versus sea of gaps. So I'm kind of, the collection looks at how to think about island perspectives in contrast to continental perspectives. So I'm working on that most immediately. But in the future, in the you know, next few years, this, this um, attempt to think about race relationally is, I think, very much how my psychoanalytic interests and my black studies interests will continue to develop together. So I'm really hoping to keep thinking about different modes of relatedness as being important for how to think about blackness. So that's where, that's where I think I'm heading. I think it's all very, very exciting, and I'm really looking forward to um, seeing what you come up with next. Um, well, we're going to stop here. Um, okay. I'm so sorry that we couldn't get to that question that you'd asked. I just couldn't catch all of it. Well, I, you know, as I said, um, I was hoping that we could do, you know, several hours of discussion on this book. So we'll, we'll have to uh, mourn our, our lost questions, I guess. Um, th- um, so Michelle Ann Stevens, the book is Skin Acts, Race, Psychoanalysis, and the Black Male Performer, Duke University Press, 2014. Thank you so, so much. It was a fantastic discussion. Time flew by. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much to you, Richard, and to listeners. Thank you very much.